Now as our sermon text, please turn with me or listen on as I read Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 to the end of the chapter. And it would seem that uh, the text is particularly addressed to husbands and so that is uh, the voice uh, that I will assume in, in the sermon as well. Uh, perhaps it was to the priests, perhaps they were faithless in their marriages. Uh, I think Calvin takes that tact. I'm not really sure. I take this in a more general sense, the faithless husbands, just as Jesus found in his own day. Although, really, the reverse can be said as well. Uh, perhaps not in those days, you didn't have wives divorcing their husbands, but certainly today. Uh, so, uh, listen to God's word. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For the Lord, uh, for Judah, excuse me, has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks a godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says uh, that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him in that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them? Or where is the God of justice? And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God which you give to us and which comes to us in some sense we could say with such variety. And yet at the same time, we go through all these books and we keep finding the same things over and over again. We find the things which are near and dear to your heart and the things which we are apt to profane by our sin. Dear God, we ask you that we might have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church, even this evening, through the preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, I'm not entirely sure if Malachi, and I don't think the commentators are either, uh, whether Malachi is speaking to the priests who are unfaithful to their wives or to the community at large, but I take it, not knowing for sure, that he is speaking now to the community at large, of whom he says, uh, again, this being Judah, they all had one father, and thus they were all bound together as brothers. He was speaking to the church in those days, and such language is used even today, that we all have one father, making the church in every age a holy, uh, a holy brotherhood. And this uh, consideration ought to lead uh, us to live a life of holy love toward one another. Brotherly love, communion. Or else, as the prophet says, what we are doing in essence by not loving our brother is practically denying that God is our father. 
And so our sin is greater than we realize. And so instead of brotherly love out of a spirit, uh, a joint spirit of the fatherhood of God that we all share and enjoy, what we so often find is what Malachi found, and that is that the people of God, that is the church, were not living in a holy fellowship of love, but were rather at odds dealing, and this is a word which occurs again and again and again, something like five, maybe seven times, dealing treacherously, treacherously. And herein, he says, the covenant was profaned. Uh, Again, that is another word that is used throughout Malachi. The issue at stake was the covenant. God stood in covenant with the people, and yet the people were profaning the covenant in so many ways. This covenant which bound them together as one body, as a covenant community, uh, the covenant by which God was a father to them and they were sons to him. But it was this in particular, the covenant that made this sin appear. And it was their treachery with regard to the marriage covenant. They were profaning the covenant by profaning the covenant of marriage. Here was now the fourth burden of the prophet. It was that the covenant of marriage was being profaned by those in covenant with God. Here was, to use again the language of the prophet, the abomination that was committed in Judah. Why are husbands who were not faithful to their wives? The Lord's holy institution, which he loves. It was that men had ceased to regard marriage as God did. And this was evident in their practice. Well, let me notice, first of all, how strongly God feels about marriage. I sometimes think this is the forgotten point. And yet this really is the point. Going back to Genesis and what we find in in Matthew. Did, Did it ever strike you as strange that Jesus in the gospel spoke so often on marriage? Is that not? He spoke, by the way, a lot about the Sabbath, too. Uh, these are things that we sometimes forget, but we find the heart of God in Scripture. And what we see about God's feelings about marriage is that, well, marriage is his own idea. It's his own institution. It's something that he created for the good of mankind. Something which he loves, verse 11. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. Now, perhaps that is, uh, you might notice in other translations, the Lord's holiness, which he loves. Judah has profaned the Lord's holiness, which he loves. Either the Lord's holy institution, marriage, or the Lord's holiness. But either way, you see, uh, marriage reflects the Lord's holiness, which he loves. And the idea strongly connects our marriages with his holiness. But man is not so fond of marriage as God is. It is, uh, to use the language of Westminster Confession, chapter 24, the common practice of men to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. That's an exact quote. Studying arguments. And sadly, this practice is, is found as much in the church as in the world. Where clever Pharisees are at work to make such arguments. Biblical grounds for divorce, they call it. 
But however clever your arguments might be, this does not change how God feels about marriage. He loves it. He wishes to bless it and mankind by it. He wishes for his own glory and the glory of his holiness, which he loves to appear by it. Shining forth by the happiness and the holiness of his people in marriage and their seed. A godly seed is something he's seeking as well. Their children. But listen to this. He hates divorce. I am the Lord. I hate divorce, he says. Divorce is something. It's so common today. People are hardly troubled by it anymore. It's something that men might wink at. And even in his worst moments, and I do not exclude ministers here, approve of. And so, in a sense, love. It's a biblical divorce, they say. But how quickly they forget God hates the very thing they approve of. Men who are so eager to approve of what God hates. Here, indeed, this is something we also forget is a woeful sign of the church in decline when her ministers are contending for divorce rather than for marriage. And so do we really think we are different than those in Malachi's day? Well, judged by this. Do we feel about marriage as God does? And what about divorce? These are the real tests. They prove something in particular that man is apt to miss. And that is how we really feel about God. That he is our father and he created us. And yet when we deal treacherously with our brother or our sisters in marriage, what we really reveal is how we feel about God. The God who instituted marriage. The God who loves marriage. And the God who hates divorce. Well, God has created marriage with a special purpose in mind. That ought to be clear already in what we've seen. Uh, And yet, again, it was God's design that was being profaned. And let us try to see how this was so. As a second point, there were three ways, and again, particularly speaking to the husbands, that marriage was being profaned in those days, and the first of which was by mixed marriages. Mixed not so much as to nationality, but as to religion. It was that Jews were marrying Gentiles, That those who were in covenant with God were marrying those who worshipped strange gods. The sons of God were marrying the daughters of a strange god. That's what the prophet says. And so that was their sin, the first sin. Mixed marriages that profane the covenant. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for uh, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Mixed marriages. Mixed marriages. And the way in which this profanes the covenant uh, is very obvious. Marriage was instituted by God as a means to safeguard the concerns of the covenant community. And of the covenant between God and his people. Uh, Very simply, when uh, the covenant of marriage is, is kept safe and holy, then the concerns of religion are kept safe and holy. When marriage is profaned, then the covenant itself is profane. The relationship between God and his people is placed in jeopardy. But marriage was meant to be a means to keep up the purity of the covenant community. But do you know, and I've seen it again and again, a good man can be ruined by his wife, dragged down by her sin. Now, likewise, the reverse. Let us be fair. 
But as I say, I'm assuming the vantage point or the viewpoint of the prophet. We're speaking about husbands. And so the message of the Bible is always be careful whom you marry. This is perhaps the most important decision you'll ever make. This is the old story that predates the flood. You remember, what was it that brought about the ruin of mankind? It was that the sons of God married the daughters of men, or to put it in the language here, they were marrying daughters of a strange God. And what was the result? It was the ruin of the whole world. This is a sad story that was found often in Israel. What happens when the godly intermarry with the ungodly? Do we think, beloved, that the church won't suffer when good men marry bad women? But the church will be fine, won't it? No, it won't. Or do we think that uh, the children in the household would not be brought to ruin, at least insofar as the concerns of godliness go, uh, go? How foolish we can be. Do we think that the bad will be made better rather than the good made worse? Again, study scripture and you tell me which is true. Matthew Henry, the way of sin, uh, the way of sin is downhill. It is not the bad made better, it's the good made worse. Let us always remember that. And so we find the same message in the New Testament. And for the same reasons. Uh, Paul isn't talking about marriage, uh, but he quotes the Old Testament and he tells us to be careful about uh, close associations with the ungodly. And certainly marriage would be included there. Do not be unequally yoked. Uh, for what fellowship is light with darkness? Certainly we see that applies to marriage. Why do, why do those who live in the light have to be so careful? Can't they bring those in darkness into the light? Well, they can. Uh, but experience proves another story or it tells another story. That's, again, so often the good are made worse rather than the bad made better. And Paul, in telling us this and, and, and in quoting the Old Testament, is saying, in essence, that this really is a timeless principle. And, of course, it is. And yet, how... Often, the decline of religion, as it was found in Malachi's day and as it is found throughout the Old Testament and as it is found in our own day, can be traced to the single thing that the men did not choose wisely, their wives. In this, we not only reveal a low view of marriage in what it is supposed to be, but we also failed to realize how much the cause and concerns of religion and godliness depend on strong godly marriages and households. And you can never uh, divorce, to use that, that word somewhat ironically, the concerns of the home and the concerns of the church. You can't do it. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that point later, so I'll leave it there for now. But their second sin was this. It was the husband's harsh and unloving treatment of their wives. Now, again, you can reverse this, uh, but, but, uh, and so you can do that in your mind, but we're, we're talking primarily about the husbands. And as they are to be the leaders of the household, it is fitting that such a message should be for them. Their treachery, again, that is the word, their treachery was seen in this, against the covenant community, the brotherhood of believers, is that they did not love their wives to whom they were bound from youth. They did not cherish them. As their nearest and dearest companion. They forgot that God had made them one. And so they ought to live. No, they were treating their wives. In the opposite fashion. Not as their dearest and, and, uh, 
their nearest and dearest companion, their cherished beloved wives. They were treating them like a burden, hating them, filling their souls with despair, causing them to weep and wail at the altar. It seems even perhaps they had become violent with them. And again, we find the exact same thing in the New Testament, the message to husbands. Uh, Husbands, Peter says, do not be harsh, but be loving, be kind with your wives. A message that we need as husbands to hear again and again because we're apt to forget it. That our wives are the weaker vessel. Women are the weaker vessel. And they ought to be treated with delicate care and tender love. Not harshly, but kindly. As the sweetest and closest companion on earth a man can have. What could be better than that a man should find a friend and a wife? And yet she's very different, isn't she? And it is these differences that often uh, cause in the heart of the man frustration, resentment, harsh treatment. But ask yourselves as husbands, why else did God give the woman to the man? Was she not meant to complement the man, matching his rugged strength with the delicate beauty and her tender spirit? Really, the man ought to see that the wife is a great gift to the man from God. But how often does the husband treat the wife like a burden to his soul because she's made differently? Well, let the Israel of God in the 21st century hear this. God notices how you treat your wives. The world may not notice. The world may not care. But just as surely as you covenanted before the Lord. Not only to have a wife, but to. To have her, to keep her, to hold her, to cherish her, all the things in your vows. So God will notice and so God will hold you to account in the treatment of your wives. Let such a message sober us to take heed, as the prophet will later say. The Lord is a witness against the faithless husband. He says that in the text. But this was most evident thirdly in the way the men were putting away their wives, which is a synonym for divorce. And so it all fits together, growing tired of the wife of their youth, and there's irony there. The wife of the youth can either mean, I've grown tired of her, or, or it's a, 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 the language of tender affection. But for the godless, it is not. It means this woman I've grown tired of. Growing tired of her, they began to treat them harshly. Even, uh, we see here, again, the concerns of uh, godliness connected with worship, even, it would seem, on the way to church, on their way to the altar to offer their offering, they were being harsh with their wives. It's perhaps why he may have been speaking of the priests, although the people had offerings to give as well, so it isn't clear. But ultimately, their worst treachery was seen in putting them away and marrying the daughters of strange, strange gods. And so here is the ultimate form of treachery. That the husband can commit divorce and beyond that remarriage. And even beyond that putting away godly wives for ungodly ones. Although that's not so strange. Just now we face this very thing in our presbytery. The thing grieves me. And yet it gives a relevance to the text. Do not think that this is an ancient concern. It is a very modern and irrelevant one. That the so-called godless would put away a godly wife in favor of an ungodly one. 
Men who grow tired of the wife of their youth and begin to treat them poorly and put them away for another and a worse companion. Again, the Lord says, I have been a witness to this, to your treachery. I have noticed. Do not think I have not noticed or cared or that I have nothing to say about it. It is a warning to husbands. But let me notice next is the third point, the age-old principle, and I alluded to this uh, a little earlier, and I want to expound upon it now. The age-old biblical principle concerning the connection between family life and public worship, covenantal worship, the covenant of marriage and the covenant of the people of God. Do you remember what Peter says about husbands treating their wives tenderly? That the man who doesn't will have his prayers hindered. And so again, we see the principle that, uh, that family life and corporate public covenant life are connected. Or do you remember what Jesus says about giving your offering while your brother has something against you? He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then go give your offerings. And so do you see that it's all connected You come to give your offering, the prophet says, and you flood the altar with tears, either because you seek God and do not find him. And why do you think that is? Or else because you're pretending to be religious when you are not. They're feigned tears. Or perhaps it is possible, as we've seen, that it is the wives who are crying because their hearts were broken as the husbands brought them uh, to church, so to speak, in this harsh and unloving way. But in any case, whosever tears they were, and for whatever reason they were shed, what is clear is that the tears that were shed were an affront to God and his worship. Not that he doesn't delight in a broken heart, but that he hates the worship of the treacherous. He hates the worship of those who hate him. He has no delight in the worship of, Uh, Again, of the treacherous man who does not, he says, delight in the wife of his youth. The man who does not seek to to promote the concerns of religion through marriage, and yet who at the same time pretends to worship God at the altar. The godless husband who pretends to be the godly professor in church. Again, the world may not notice or care, but God does. And he is a witness against such hypocrisy. God is looking for consistency. That's always the message of the Bible. And so let not the man, the faithless man, wonder why God does not accept his offering when he is against his own wife. If we regard not God in our marriages, beloved, he will not regard us in our worship. And so God is saying that there are major consequences for this. Consequences that will be known primarily in worship. God is saying no less than this, that he does not accept the offerings of such a people. He rejects their worship. He stands no longer for them, but against them. Just as he stands against godless ministers, so he stands against the faithless husband. He no longer regards such people as being in covenant with him. This is a principle we ought to take to heart. It's a slight variation of something I often say, and that is that the church is only as strong as the people who occupy it or inhabit it. The strength does not depend solely upon uh, the faithfulness of the minister, but it also depends greatly upon the faithfulness of the people. A faithful church is only possible if, well, let's say the, 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 the pastor and all the husbands are faithful. 
All the men together, standing and contending for godliness in their homes and in the church. Then you might have a faithful and a godly church, but not otherwise. And nowhere, let me say again, all the concerns of religion and indeed the strength and the power of godliness. Nowhere ought these things to be evident and in lively exercise more so than in the home. If not there, then where? At church? Hardly. Godless husbands do not make good worshipers or pastors. If I had to summarize the text, that would be my summary. Let godliness be cultivated at home, especially between the husband and the wife. There is the burden of the prophet. There is the burden of scripture. And then... Let them go together, not with a broken heart, not weeping at the altar, but let them go together in the strength of their union with with great joy and rejoicing and offer real sacrifices of praise to God, not with tears, but with thanksgiving. That indeed is a religion worthy of the name. And so let us notice in the next place what it is that God is seeking in marriage positively. And that's something we notice in the text as well. In telling them what they weren't doing, God was really telling them what they should have been doing. First, it is, we see again, his holy institution or something that is connected with his holiness. Verse 11. Here is something God loves and he loves for man to love. God is greatly glorified by godly marriages. And he loves to be glorified in this way. He loves to manifest his holiness, which he loves in godly marriages. Just as he counts it as a great affront on his holiness when we profane the covenant of marriage and yet pretend to worship him. Second, we see how he describes marriage and let each husband take this to heart. Here is the spirit of faithfulness described. He describes it as a blessed companionship. The bringing together of the two and God joining them together as one. And do you see how tenderly he speaks of the wife? And only the godly can ever understand this. The wife of your youth. Your wife by covenant. Bound together by God in a lifelong bond. Something not to be endured. But enjoyed. This is God's design and purpose for marriage. Again, a blessed companionship. There is no sweeter companionship than this, Luther says. Something which, above all, was instituted to promote the happiness and the well-being of man. Again, not something to be endured, but something to be enjoyed. Not the wife you grow tired of, but the wife you delight in all of your days. The man and the woman living together in harmony and going together to worship God. Is anything God says, and God through the prophet, anything more dear to a man than his own wife? My dear and beloved wife of my youth. You see, not a burden to him, not someone he eventually grows tired of. It's been so long and I long for something new. That's what the restless sinful heart says. But here, again, is the language of tender affection and covenant love. I am not surprised that the godless do not understand this. How the love 
and the friendship of marriage, this blessed companionship, uh, is, is meant and can get better all the time. Not worse, but better. The love of marriage is growing all the time. The husband's affection for the wife is growing all the time. And he only wishes that he could live longer, if only that their marriage might live longer. But nothing is more unfitting for the people of God, this holy brotherhood under the fathership of God, or the fatherhood of God. Nothing is more unfitting that they should quarrel and separate, that is, divorce. How badly our witness as Christians suffer when this happens. Rather than promoting the covenant in the eyes of others, we profane it. That's what God says. God set up the home as a place where the light of the gospel might shine. And the church is the gathering together of all of those godly homes. Not as that which might be dimmed by our sin. And so I say again, God is glorified by the long and the happy marriages of the godly. And how encouraging and how much it cheers me. To hear of the witness of long and happy marriages in the church. But as a third purpose, we also see God emphasizing here something that he emphasizes again throughout scripture. And we notice God is not uh, someone who is afraid to repeat himself. And that is connected to the covenantal concerns of marriage uh, is the concern of a godly seed. This is something that you find in the confession and you find it here. That godliness is preserved and promoted and the kingdom of God is growing. When Christians have children. Not when the godly marry the ungodly. Though thank God even then all is not lost. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. If there's only one believer that the children are made holy. But you see even then the children are placed in jeopardy. The whole household is out of order. The real picture here is that two Christians might be married. And they might delight in one another and have children. And then promote the concerns of godliness, preserving the concerns of religion in the home as a little church, a little communion. And then together, the husband and the wife and all the children might worship God to the glory of God with great rejoicing and gladness. Again, there is a religion worthy of the name. But what is the remedy as a fifth point for those who have fallen or those perhaps who may, which is all of us? It is all of us. Twice the Lord says, take heed. And he says, in particular, take heed to your spirit. Because that is where the heart grows restless and begins to long for another. It it begins to resent God, as we'll see in a moment. And it begins to hate the wife of your youth rather than delighting in her. Take heed to your marriages and especially to your spirit. Do not allow yourself, you husbands, to entertain unloving and harsh thoughts of your spouse. Guard your heart. Keep up a lively affection for the wife of your youth whom God has given you. Delight in her. Thank God for her. Rejoice in her every bit as much as you did at first. Remember that love is something That can be cultivated always. Love to God. Love to the brethren. Love for your wife. If you do not have it, well then cultivate it. Guard your heart. Take heed to your spirit. Learn to think of her in a kindly and an affectionate way. As this dear companion whom God has given to you. Your first and only love. The wife of your youth. This one whom you chose and delighted in at first. 
Again, you see, a man doesn't say this, the wife of my youth, because it's been so long, and he's ready for something new, and he's grown tired of her. He says it because of how much he rejoices in her. This is an affectionate way of speaking to her. I know that we might speak of our wives in this way. But take heed to this as well. That this is what Satan is scheming after. And I think I know this now more than I've ever known it. The thing that Satan wants to destroy is your marriage. And so he'll never leave it alone. He will always go after it. And if he cannot keep us from church, though he might try, he will go after our marriages. He will seek, seek to keep our marriages in a constant state of tumult and conflict to the point that rather than delighting in marriage, we grow tired of it. We will, as, we see, as, as we'll see in a moment, even begin to complain to God, resenting him for marriage. Why did you ever institute marriage, God? And why did you bring this woman to me? The reason for this is obvious. The reason Satan goes after marriage. By the the way, the reason I say that's obvious, and I don't mean to just constantly be lamenting about this in the pulpit, but I'm still reeling about this minister friend of mine who's fallen into adultery and is unrepentant. How can you not see that and take heed? When even, uh, at least seemingly, the godly should fall. Do you realize what Satan is doing or are you still ignorant of his schemes? Have you not felt uh, him prowling about seeking to devour your marriage? Almost it would seem every day. And have you not looked about you and seen countless times of his success? But the reason for this is obvious, isn't it? Because we understand the burden of the prophet. That if the concerns of godliness are ever to be maintained and that it's in the church, they must be maintained first at home. There you will only, uh, and only there will you ever know the happiness and the holiness of true religion. And if you cannot know it there, you will not find it in church. Let me underline that point again. But if you found it there, well then you'll find it in the church. I think of what Thomas Watson says, the beginning of the body of divinity. The reason the sermons do no more good than they do is because people were not catechized at home. Well, you can throw out the catechism if you like, but the point is, religion wasn't cultivated at home. Are we surprised then that it did no good in the churches? Let it begin in the home. But that is where Satan brings his first assault. Do you realize he's been doing that all along? What was his first attack? He didn't go after Adam, he went after his wife. Do you realize why that was? It's because he wanted to set these two people at odds. He was attacking marriage and so he's ever been doing. It is his most effective strategy. It is his go-to, whether in bringing down a ministry or a church or a family. He always, it seems, goes after the marriage. And again, I say with alarming success, take heed, the prophet says, take heed to your spirit. When When the resentment, the harsh and loving thoughts begin to pop up, You have to deal with them right there. Because once the heart is gone, then you are in grave danger. Stand against the enemy, that your prayers be not hindered, Peter says. But what is more, God says, and almost it would seem uh, bringing in another concern, but I, I think it's best to connect it with all that's said. Verse 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone does evil, is good in the sight of the Lord, in the Lord, uh, And he delights 
in them or where is the God of justice? I think that fits in perfectly. Again, this is the person who is complaining to God. He's saying, look at me trying to live a godly life with the wife of my youth and I'm so unhappy, but look at the man who put away his wife and all the fun he's having. And who is God really blessing then? And so you have the complaining, bitter, resentful heart. And that is the logic of sin. It always questions the justice of God. Always. Where is God's justice in instituting marriage? Did he really seek to promote my happiness? Or was he really after my misery? You see, it goes right back to the garden. Where uh, Satan questioned not only the truthfulness of God's word, but the intentions of God. But again, as I say, this is how the sinful heart always, always reasons. Temptation, stirring up discontentment in our hearts, questioning the goodness and the justice of God. And what does God say? It's all so wearisome. Instead of filling heaven with your praise, you fill it with your complaints and your arguments against my ordinances, excusing your sin. And this is far from fitting from those whom he calls his children, pretending he delights in those who, breaks, who break his laws rather than his own children who keep them. But let me close by saying this. Let us uh, always in Malachi, but especially here, keep an eye to the new covenant, as Malachi would have us to do, and as we'll see uh, just next week, Lord willing. And remember not only that the grace of the, uh, of the new covenant was meant to strengthen the bond of marriage, but that marriage likewise in the New Testament becomes a fitting picture of the bond and the love which exists between Christ and his bride. Look to the Gospels and you will find our Lord speaking often as the prophet did, burdened by the very same things, condemning a low view of marriage and a high view of divorce. Likewise, speaking of the blessings of the bond of marriage and of children, And so you will find the apostles doing frequently in their letters. Marriage is to be held in high esteem in all the churches. And divorce is to be shunned. Let uh, the marriage bed remain undefiled. And let me just ask you. Speaking of the apostles, where do you ever find the apostles teaching on divorce? You will look to their letters in vain. And there's good reason for this. Why would believers ever get divorced? Of course, Paul concedes in 1 Corinthians 7, the unbeliever may divorce you, but that's something different. We're talking about two believers. And that's the only reference you find in all of their epistles. Otherwise, they say you're bound to this person and you really ought to be thankful for this. You husbands, be sure that you love your wives. You wives, be sure that you respect your husbands. Do not resent God for this. Thank him. What a wise and a good and indeed a just God we have to have given us the gift of marriage. Let us be thankful. Let us not begrudge or resent his justice and his laws, but delight in them. And he in us, loving him as a son loves the father. And let us see likewise what a fitting vehicle this becomes to express the love of the son of God to his bride, the church. Do we realize What marriage is. And can we ever understand the gospel until we do. The unbreakable bond. The everlasting union. Well at least between Christ and the church. The union and the bond of love. And fellowship. Are we not thankful to see. 
that to be bound to Christ means this to him as the loving husband and the faithful husband, that he is happy and glad to be bound to us and he will ever cherish us as his nearest and dearest companion, the wife of his youth, you might say, regarding us always and ever as bound to him, ever as the object of his tenderest affection and love. Beloved, do you entertain such views of the blessed union between Christ and the church? And thank God, you see, and you realize it really is like this. But you see, Paul says, because of this, it ought likewise to be so between you husbands and wives. Let the husband be sure that he loves his wife more than any in this world. And that he will ever love her like this. The wife of his youth. The wife of covenant. And likewise. You wives be happy to submit to his loving care and leadership. As the church is called to do to her head and husband Jesus Christ. And what a fitting metaphor. For the glorious union. Of love. Between Christ and his church. And is it any wonder. Given that. That our worship and our witness as Christian people depend upon the state of our marriages. And so let us share the burden of the prophet Malachi and of our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and glorify the God of Israel by our marriages. Amen. And let us stand together and sing in praise to God. Hymn number 118.